So that's kind of where we'll go. Good afternoon. It is March the 3rd, and this is Michael Vandervoort, and I'm doing a, an afternoon uh, show of Drive Through HR, an episode of Drive Through HR. I haven't done one in a little while. Had some uh, family issues come up, and my father recently passed away, so it, it uh, put the show on hiatus for a little bit, but I wanted to get back and start doing shows again, so I uh, lined up a uh, a guest today to talk about my particular interest, which is labor relations. There's a lot going on. And, and our guest today is always in the thick of stuff with it, with that, with this particular area. So I'd like to welcome uh, Peter List to the show. Peter, welcome to drive through HR. How are you today? Thank you, Mr. Vandervoort. I'm doing fine. I, uh, I think I, I sent my condolences via Facebook uh, when I saw your father passed you, away. Sorry to hear that. You did. Um, you know, I, I, I won't go into a lot of it. it was, he had dementia and had been having some issues for quite a while. And I've, I've talked about that on and off on the show. And, um, you know, I, I'm sad that he, that he has passed away, but it, it, it really is, uh, it's a horrible disease and he was in a lot of, a lot of trouble. So it, it's, yeah. uh, it's it, at the end of it, you know, uh, I don't use the word blessing lately, but I guess in this case, it's a blessing for him. So, um, we'll, uh, we'll just leave it at that, but I appreciate the condolences. Yeah. Um, Peter, uh, I know who you are pretty well, but many of our listeners will not. So why don't you, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and get what you do and a little bit about your background. Do you want the long version or the short version? Whatever suits you. It's your, <laughs> it's your portion of the show. Um, so I've been doing labor related work for nearly four decades, which includes a almost 10 years inside the labor movement. Um, about 30 years ago, I was a young union representative, as a young union worker, grew up in Arizona, uh, became a union rep, which there's a story behind why, but um, worked my way up through a union local, been out on strike. I left the union movement as I was getting my degree in labor relations. And as I was finishing my degree, um, I had, as one of our degree requirements is to do a uh, paper on the decline, well, my, my chosen topic was to do a paper on the decline of unions and what they needed to do to come back. And I entered writing that paper and doing the research on that paper as still pro-union. And by the time I was finished with the paper, I decided not to continue in the union movement. And so I floundered around for about a year, year and a half, had a job offer uh, in New Jersey for a uh, big company as my former employer that was in labor relations and it was at the time they were riffing tens of thousands of people. So I went and went to find a new job somewhere mm -hmm. else and wound up getting hired with a company back in Arizona, although running their East coast office and doing labor and employee relations. So because of my union background, I uh, got sucked into doing what are known as union campaigns. So I've been doing labor relations or union campaigns for the last 20, 27 years, 28 years. So been involved in eh, four or 500 of them, either directly or indirectly. Uh, that's, so. that's a bunch. I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm happy to say that I, I haven't had any real, uh, in 35 years, I haven't really had any serious, like to the wall organizing efforts come my way, but I have done some decertifications and, you know, have had certainly had many brushes over the years, but they, they ultimately never went to a vote outside of the decert. So um, 500 is about at least 450 too many for me, I would say. <laughs> well, I, I kind of joke around sometimes I've probably 
talked to more pissed off employees in my lifetime than I think anybody else ever has. So yeah, I, so, I've been saturated. Yeah. So um one I guess so 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 first of all, let's sort of let's talk about what's going on today. I mean, um there is there is so much happening in the realm of labor relations right now that it's almost difficult to keep up with on a daily basis. And it hasn't been this way since, I guess, since the Obama years, going back to 2008. And I'm not sure it was, I thought it was crazy then, but I'm not sure it, 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 it was as crazy then as it is now. And when I say crazy, I mean busy, rapid change, transformational uh, decisions from the board, major changes in labor law, all kinds of things that upset what is typically a pretty steady, kind of almost boring field. In, a, in, a, in the olden days, labor relations was the same for like 30 years, and that hasn't been true in the last decade or so, and especially today. So can you kind of summarize quickly how, how your view of that era is? Yeah, this is, um, it's kind of exciting. And I yep. say that half facetiously because, you know, we're expecting um, the sky to fall back in the Obama years. And if you really look back at what the Obama NLRB was doing, we got ambush elections, we got specialty health care, which is micro units. And we got, um, we didn't even get Weingarten rights back in the non-union sector during the Obama years, which was kind of surprising. Mm -hmm. They didn't, of course, you know, they ruled against employers. Um, all of that was expected, but really we thought the sky was going to fall and they didn't take advantage of certain things like this board appears to be. Mm -hmm. And now we're looking at a sea change um, that I, again, been doing this nearly 40 years and I have never seen the environment like this. Um, and you mentioned, you know, everything coming at you with all the news stories and stuff. And if you noticed, um, so we launched laborunionnews.com two months ago. Mm -hmm. And we literally hand select every article that goes up there. And it's, it's neither from the union side, nor the employer side, it's just everything, right? right. So we have over 1600 stories up there in two months. Which... And, <laughs> you know, we've got to categorize between organizing, bargaining, labor disputes, you know, general union news and all that sort of stuff. But it's just like every night I'm up until three in the morning, just seeing what else is coming through the pipeline. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's talk about that before we go into kind of the environment, because you've had a, a I've known you long enough to see you through several iterations of you as a blogger and you as sort of a, you know, I don't know, um, advocate slash pundit in some ways at times. Bomb and, thrower. Bomb thrower. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know you like that, but it, to, to be honest, and sometimes you are, but, but I, I think a lot of times as you, when you, especially as you report um, on stuff now, you, you, you do take kind of a neutral role um, in, in not a neutral role in terms of your work, but in terms of your presentation of the information that you're seeking to share. So I think your first was your first blog labor union report i don't it's it's been it was, a number of things it's been a newsletter yeah, so and a blog back and... before when uh back when i first started blogging which was in 2006 it was when the employee free choice act was still on the agenda right um and it was basically a, a newsletter towards uh hr management side you know lawyers and all that stuff and saying here's what's coming here's what's coming and just kind of tracking the news articles and opining about them and that was under the old uh, Google 
I think his blog spot, if I remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then shortly after the election uh, in 2008, and you know, knowing that the NLRB was changing over, um, I had I was talking to somebody, and we both know them, um, but out of DC, and I was like. I was presenting information to an HR group one time and talking about EFCA, the, you know, card check provisions and binding arbitration. And the HR group had no idea what I was talking about. So I was like, well, I've been focusing on the wrong audience and I need to go more public. And mm -hmm. so he said, Hey, you ought to start writing over at red state. And I didn't even know what red state was. Um, and so I started posting there because it was like a community forum. And so within, I think, three, four months, I got promoted to the front page of Red State. And at the time, um, I was only focused on the labor issues. So that was as labor union report. And then I built the website around that. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to keep the blogging separate from the business, although there's some crossover. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was writing obviously with a slant to it in terms of here's what's going on. Here's the logical ramifications of it. You know, binding arbitration, for example, which will be a disaster for workers if they ever get that passed because it takes away workers' rights. Um, you know, card check is one thing. And and I posted a story a little while ago. I was mentioning, I just sent it to you. Um, I think we're going to see card check in a form. Mm -hmm. The problem with card check, I don't really care if people sign cards, but doing it knowingly of what they're signing is the key to that. So, mm -hmm. um, but anyway, I went from uh, Red State, I was still writing it at uh, labor union report the problem with labor union report was in order to post an article um you really had to do it as a blog post mm -hmm. which you know i just don't have the time to do that especially when i'm out on the road working so it you know i go back and forth with that so then finally in uh november and and i should mention my office helps with doing just the straight news stuff on labor union report she's uh I won't mention her name, but we call her rookie. <laughs> so um, she, uh, she'll she set up the HTML and, and post the articles about the various unions. So around November, I think, um, I was just, I, I wanted to have a news aggregator. And that's been my goal for 15 years, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. just to aggregate the news. So I finally found the um, WordPress theme to do that. Had my blind web guy uh, put it together. Took a, took a little while. We're still tweaking it here and there. Mm -hmm. But it's just literally so I can post news very quickly and have it segmented. And I think it's sometimes overwhelming for some readers because we do the daily digest. And then like Monday mornings, there's like 60, 70 articles up there. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm still tweaking on that. And, and, uh, and are, doing are you on, um, you said a WordPress, but are you on Substack? Or is it? Yeah. So the Substack that, so a lot of this stuff is like stuff I've wanted to do and technology's finally caught up to what I wanted to do. Um, so the, we do a daily digest, which is now in the mornings. I was doing it first week or two in the evenings. Um, but the daily digest goes out at say seven, six thirty to seven, whatever time I set it for. Um, usually posting until about three in the morning on that to get it straightened out. And then um, and then the readers, the paid subscribers will get the uh, charges and petitions that are filed daily at the National Labor Relations Board from the day before. They'll get that in the evening. Mm -hmm. So it's um, and then if I see something really newsworthy, um, for example, another topic we could talk about, I was just doing a post on the 32 hour work week that is 
been introduced in Congress to pay overtime over 32 hours hmm. instead of 40. I hadn't even seen that. So breaking news for me anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's, let's go back for a minute. So, so thanks for that. So labor union report, um, there's a free version and there's a paid version. Um, I, don't, I don't know what the price. I, I no, say, labor, but, labor union news. I'm uh, sorry, labor union news, not labor yeah. union report. Yeah, so the website, thing. the website is always free mm -hmm. uh, to get the subscription, which is the daily news digest. Um, it can, it's free or for paid subscribers, you get a little bit more. Uh, it's a hundred dollars a year. I'm hoping to expand the number of paid subscribers so that I can in turn subscribe to more of the paid websites that to get the news from. So, cause we hit paywalls all the time. Yeah. Um, so, so from a HR, uh, practitioner perspective, if you're somebody that is, um, you know, it has to, has to keep track of, um, labor relations stuff, but you don't want to like, like I'm a nerd about it. So I, I read all day long and I'm, I have the luxury, I guess, of having a job that requires me to do this. So I, I look this stuff up, you know, I'm kind of, I chase the stories like, and the news like Peter does, but if you're somebody who has to do other things, employee relations and benefits and pay and all those sorts of things, labor union news is a great resource, um, which you can get for free, or if you want more detail, you can, you can, as Peter said, you can sign up for the more extended version and it's, it's really affordable. And um, I can tell you that it, it is uh, it, it, amongst it already, even in just two months amongst the top resources that I use on a daily basis to keep up with stuff, because there's nothing that beats a guy who aggregates and curates information that you need and makes it easy to get at your fingertips. So Peter's not a sponsor. I'm not trying to sell him, but it's a great resource for <laughs> HR professionals. So well, I've been doing so much for free for so long. And it's literally, it's, you know, it's not going to pay my bills. What I'm hoping to do is just make it so it's, uh, you know, break even so that I can subscribe to more stuff to bring more news. Right. So. Yeah. So check it out. And, and it's just laborunionnews.com. Yep. Okay, cool. Um, let's go back to EFCA for a minute. Not that it's important. It's a, it's a bill that was introduced in 2007, I think, and never passed, but it, it's only important as the roots of the rest of the conversation we're going to have. So um, EFCA and the Obama White House, it, there was a big change in the labor relations environment back in, that, back in 2008 after President Obama was elected. And I'll just sum it up really quickly. Um, Union-friendly president, union front, front appointed a union-friendly department secretary of labor, um, a union friendly Hilda Solis. Uh, Hilda Solis. And then later on, uh, what's his name? Uh, Perez, Tom Perez. Yeah. Uh, both of them very union friendly, but Hilda specifically um, as the first. Very union friendly National Labor Relations Board representatives, which is entirely permissible and legal. In fact, traditional White House politics and also a general counsel who was a couple of them who were very union friendly. And they began to undertake a transformation of labor law and policy at the board level that was really, um, it, it, I don't wanna say radical, but it was, it was, uh, there was a lot happening. EFCA was a piece of legislation that was passed in the House and got blocked in the Senate that would have rewritten the National Labor Relations Act and transformed about 85 years at that time, about 85 years of labor law in, in many, into many new forms. That didn't happen, but that, that plan and the desire to have that kind of reform hasn't gone away. So President Obama, as Peter already kind of said, they didn't do quite as much as we thought would happen. Uh, primarily, EFCA didn't pass. Um, then 
President Obama passed the, the uh, ACA, spent a lot of political capital, and mo much of the union agenda fell off the table at that point in his second term. Um, so they didn't make the long-term gains that we feared. Um, of course, then President Trump was elected for his, his so far single term and was, you know, kind of reverted stuff back to a more uh, business-friendly atmosphere as Republicans are want to do. And now we've got Joe Biden. And Joe Biden has literally followed the playbook, in my opinion, of the, the Obama administration with the same kind of appointments, the same kind of... Uh, you know, same kind of transformative agenda and, and a new piece of legislation that also won't pass called the PRO Act, Protecting the Right to Organize Act. So we're, we're sort of in 2.0 of, uh, of a new labor environment, and we're seeing it unfold uh, pretty quickly this year. And by the end of 2022, uh, I think HR practitioners could, could be facing some really new uh, in, in some cases really new, and in some cases sort of old things made new again, uh, that it, an environment that will be much different than you're used to operating in. So we're gonna talk around some of those things for a little bit. Um, does that seem like a fair uh, way to set the stage, Peter? Yes, um, although the PRO Act is really EFCA on steroids. Yeah. There is, there's three main provisions in the Employee Free Choice Act, which was card check, binding arbitration, and monetary fines. There are 27 provisions in the PRO Act, mm -hmm. and it it is landscape changing. Um, I think what's what's happening now, they realize they can't get the PRO Act done, so they're doing it at either the state level or through the NLRB. And and there's also some discussion, although I'm not really sure what the potential of it is, that some executive orders at some point could come through as well. So they're gonna they're yeah. not gonna get the the sweeping legislative reform that they would love, I say they, um, that's not going to happen. It's clear the there's no way that'll pass with the 50-50 deadlock that we have in the in the house currently. And who knows what'll happen in, in the elections, you know, the end of the year. So we'll see. Um, but anyway, they're still going to try to make a, a, a lot of changes. So let's start, I guess, with the board. And I, I suppose uh, as opposed to the board, the National Labor Relations Board, but let's start with Jennifer Abruzzo. Um, Jennifer Abruzzo is appointed by President Biden after he fired a, 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 a sitting uh, general counsel that was appointed by President Trump. We had about two years left to go on his, uh, his term. And I think it was the first time. And if it wasn't the first, it was one of only a couple of times that a sitting new president fired a, a sitting uh, general counsel. So Peter Robb was, a very, was appointed by President Trump was very business friendly. He was summarily dismissed, uh, I'm told within about a half an hour of Joe Biden completing the the oath of office. So that's a that's a that's a big thing. Oh yeah, um, is inauguration day. Yeah, it, I mean it, that's a that that must have been super important for to make that one of the first things that Joe Biden did on his first day as president cuz I'd be like checking out the Oval Office and you know that kind of stuff and he's he's busy firing the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board. So Talk, yep. talk to so he, he nominated a woman named Jennifer Abruzzo. She's a she's a uh, been with the agency on and off for thirty years. Um, she's when she left the the board or the agency a couple of years ago, she joined a, a union. I think it was CWA, but I'm not sure. Yeah, and yep. she came and she came my back. old union. Yep, your old union, and and she came back uh, with a plan. 
uh, and it's a it's a it's a big plan. So you want to kind of talk about Jennifer Brizo and some of the stuff she's teeing up right sure. now? Sure. Uh, this literally could go all day, but um, so Jennifer Brizo came in, and I don't know that it was her plan. I think she helped craft it, but she's definitely involved with executing it. Um, they've they came out with a number of things. She she did not get confirmed until over the summer. So even before she was confirmed, they had a uh, acting GC by the name of Peter Sung Orr, who came out with one of the first changes back in March, which was to expand protected concerted activity to um, social activism causes. So whether it's Black Lives Matter, Fight for 15, things that are not necessarily um, directly impacting the workforce, but tangentially can impact the workforce. They've essentially said, we're going to expand. If a worker wants to go out on the streets to go protest a societal issue, they can do that because it'll invariably it'll affect their, their rights as employees under the National Labor Relations Act. So that was the first move. Then Abruzzo came in. I want to say it was around June or July. She got confirmed. It did not take her long uh, to, to start putting her her footprint on things. And so on August 12th, um, which was last year, August 12th, she issued a wide ranging multi-page um, directive to the regional offices for submissions of advice, which is basically saying to the regional offices, the National Labor Relations Board, if you have a case like this come up, we want you to send it to us so that we can give you advice on how to handle it. So in there, they, she talked about um, things like Weingarten rights, the Joy Silk decision, um, banning captive audience meetings or somehow uh, affecting captive audience meetings, all of which is happening today, and a whole bunch of other things, uh, joint employer status, independent contractors, et cetera. So um, as the cases have come up through you know, things that are happening out on the streets, they're sending them to the GC and they're putting their stamp on it, so to speak, on here's how we want you to handle it. I.e. the Joy Silk thing, which is basically card check. Um, and not to get into too much of the details, but essentially under today's law, if 30% of the employees sign union authorization cards, an employer can voluntarily recognize the union. Most do not. If a union gets... Uh, majority of the workers to sign cards, uh, then the employer has a choice to either recognize voluntarily the union or the union can file a petition. So the purpose of having a union election is really to determine by secret ballot as to whether or not a majority of the employees want a union. The union's position going all the way back to EFCA is just their signatures, card check, their signatures should signify whether they want a union. That's their vote, basically. Mm -hmm. So the GC memo under Joy Silk is essentially saying an employer, either if the union has a majority of cards signed and the union presents them to the employer, the employer has to have bona fide good faith doubt. And I'm, I'm kind of not actually quoting it per se, but um, it's essentially the employer has to have good faith doubt in order to not recognize the union. So, for example, there's a strike going on, uh, and it's a non-union strike. I put air fingers quotes around that. Non-union strike going on right now in Detroit with a company called Great Lakes Coffee mm -hmm. that the workers went out on strike. A majority of them have signed cards. The union 
within the last day or so, has filed charges against the employer for not voluntarily recognizing or not recognizing the union based on the cards. So that's a case, for example, that's going to go up to Abruzzo and, and per her August 12th memo is would probably, if she follows, uh, carries forward with that, is probably going to say, no company, you've got to recognize the union. And that will likely play out in the courts, but that's the direction on that specific thing that they're going towards. There's, Sorry, um, go ahead. So there's another case um, down in Alabama. Amazon has a couple different, well, three elections going on right now. One of them down in Bessemer, Alabama, which is a rerun election in which uh, the RWDSU last week filed some charges against Amazon. And a couple of them are kind of more your typical boilerplate charges, you know, removing the union literature from the bulletin board. I don't remember what the other one was, threats or something like that. And then the third one, which they, the RWDSU stated in their press release was the mere fact of holding captive audience meetings is coercing employees in their rights. And it's kind of a twisted logic they're using because the section seven rights, which allows employees to go forward and, and engage in collective bargaining through representatives of their own choosing you know, engage in protected concerted activity. And then there's this statement in there that they also have the right to refrain from any or all such activities, right? Mm -hmm. So the union's logic in that is you're violating employees' rights from refraining from all those activities by holding mandatory meetings with the employees, mm -hmm. which is mm, not really what the law was meant to, for that, but okay. So the, yeah. the goal of that is to either ban captive audience meetings or to force equal time right. for the unions to come in and, and meet with the employees. And, and the Joyce Silk, the, the net impact of the Joyce Silk, uh, which is an old case from like 1949, and it was a standard many, many years ago, but it was changed, I think in the 60s or something. Um, the Joyce Silk net impact, if, if that is brought, brought forward or brought back, would be that it would effectively end uh, elections. Right. It, yep. Which is what makes it equivalent to card check, essentially. Right. Um, yeah, it would effectively end. So so employers almost invariably choose to hold an election, a secret ballot election, because it, it you know, gives them a chance to carry on a, a campaign just as the union has done to get employees uh, or members to sign cards. So it's a it's a very much like a, a, a political campaign where each each side presents their arguments and thoughts and logic and whatever, and tries to convince people to, to join their side. Um, these captive audience meetings, I think that's actually a union, union coined term. The, these are educational meetings, right? That, where the, right. the employer meets with, with their um, employees and talks about what, what having a union would mean and realities of collective bargaining and a bunch of other things. Uh, so, and, and we've been able to do that. I mean, employers been able to do that like throughout the history of the act, as far as I know. I mean, I'm not old as old as the act, but. Yeah. And I think they'll still be able to, um, even if they ban mandatory meetings, you can still do voluntary meetings. Voluntary meetings. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and we've, we've had that happen numerous occasions. Um, I think a lot of times employers get freaked out about some of the things coming down the pike, but there's usually, you know, there are ways to comply with the law that still allows you to meet with your employees, provide them education. You know, I've done campaigns. I shouldn't say campaigns, plural. I had a couple occasions where I've done um, under an employer's neutrality agreement, 
been able to do meetings with the employees. Had to have a union rep in there. They had to know what I was presenting in terms of materials, you know, 24 hours in advance and all that, which is, you know, a lot of times people get confused about, well, they, they just don't know what actually you're educating employees on. Our, literally, when we're meeting with employees, we provide facts, which the almost every time we meet with employees, the first thing we give them is a, a basic guide of the National Labor Relations Act, which is published by the National Labor Relations Board, right? So if we're talking about union dues being mandatory, if you're not in a right-to-work state, that's right there in the booklet. If we're talking about strikes and permanent replacements, that's in the booklet. That's from the National Labor Relations Board. So, yeah. Um, the, um, the, the reason I bring this up is for the, the most of the people who listen to this show will not be actively involved with unions and probably have very little interaction with unions or concern about unions on a daily basis in your HR job because unions aren't that significant of a por- portion of our work world anymore. In the US, uh, public and private sector combined union memberships about 11% of the workforce. And in the private sector alone, it's 6.1% as of the end of 2021. I think those numbers are pretty close. So, you know, one in 10 across our whole economy, public and private sector, and about one in 12 are are members of a union. So most HR people, nine out of 10 HR people are never dealing with a labor union these days. Um, And it, it might have been, you know, years since you've even really spent much time thinking about it, but they're despite those low numbers and that low membership density rate, um, there's a lot of activity right now. I'll kind of pivot over. Uh, the one that if, if you're not paying attention to it, um, this is the most viral and unprecedented campaign I have seen in my career. I don't know if you'll echo that or not, Peter. And that's the Starbucks campaign. Um, since I think November of last year, 114, I don't know what the count is today. It changes on a daily basis. 114 separate Starbucks locations have filed for election to unionize or are in the process of filing. Um, and it's, uh, they've, so far, Starbucks has had four elections uh, held in front of the National Labor Relations Board and lost three of the four. So they're, they're feeling a tremendous amount of pressure with this campaign. You want to comment on what you're seeing and how, how unique it is? Yeah, that, well, it's happening quickly. Um, and which kind of, I've got an open question about it is how many people have they planted in the, and this is, by the way, I should back up for a second. This is the SEIU, um, that is funding a group. Well, it's a, they've got an affiliate called workers United, mm-hmm. which has formed a quote unquote union. I'd call it a, a union local specific to an, a certain employer called Starbucks workers United. Um, so it's well-funded and they've, they literally sprung it on Starbucks, as you indicated back in November. Um, they've got over a hundred elections scheduled. Um, they're starting, I would think they're starting to come to, you know, ballot counts within the next month or so with a lot of them. Um, now bear in mind, Starbucks has 9,000 stores across the U S so right. it's a, it's a very small portion of this. What's interesting about it is if you go back to the whole fight for 15 model, which is SEIU, they wanted to unionize a, an employer, like, you know, a single employer like McDonald's and do a large contract, um, industry wide contract, if you will, and then 
parlay that into other fast food organizations. This is going store by store. And, you know, let's say hypothetically, they eventually win 900 of them. That's still only 10% of the company. And even if the company were to agree to a single contract for those 900, you know, is that going to be a good contract or a bad contract? What's, what's fascinating about this, um, and this, this is an article probably about two to three weeks ago, apparently, uh, every time they file a petition, they're sending a letter to the CEO from each store. And one of the letters that the union obviously drafted, but they're quoting uh, Starbucks workers, like, we have no problem with our policies. We don't have any problem with our pay. We just want a bigger seat at the table. So if you think about what the causal factors normally are for union organizing, it doesn't appear they have any real issues. You know, maybe a store here or there doesn't like their manager or they don't like their, you know, the mop bucket or whatever. But this is not your normal campaign. This is um, a generational, and they call it Generation U, generational ep- uprising, uh, which goes into a whole bunch of other societal issues that I'm still trying to wrap my head around. Because um, I don't, most logical people don't want to pay 50 to 60 bucks a month or 40 or whatever the cost is if they're not going to get something out of it, right? So if the workers are really just wanting something out of it, like a bigger voice or seat at the table, I would think there's a different way to go about it than literally paying, you know, several hundred dollars a year. And, and that's what I can't put my head around other than I think, um, and this isn't to denigrate anybody who works for Starbucks, but they kind of bred the culture and the, it's kind of like Frankenstein built the monster and now is upset with the monster because, you know, it's the culture that they've kind of helped foster that's coming back and biting them. Yeah, there, there's a fascinating development because Starbucks, I mean, I'm a, I'm a daily customer. I'm very familiar with them, you know, as a customer in their stores, I drive through. I'm drinking Starbucks as we speak. I mean, you know, so you see what the working can, I mean, they're busy, but, but as a, as an employer, they have a great reputation. You know, they offer some better, I mean, you can question whether they're as, you know, all they're cracked up to be or not, but pretty well thought of generally speaking, at least in the business community, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. And frankly, by most of their customers. So it's, it's, you know, what, what we're hearing and seeing is, is, yeah, to your point, it's kind of a little hard to get your head around, um, but it, it's a progressive kind of, uh, I don't want to make it po- political, but it, they're, they, Starbucks is a, is a self-created progressive brand. They, they advocate right. on behalf of issues and stuff. And right. just, so in some ways, they're, they're facing some challenges on trying to explain why they are against a union, which they're you know, of their own employees. You know, to to your point, all they want is a voice. They just want to be able to talk to their company in a different way. Anyway, um, another go ahead and the the kids um, and I'm calling them kids because I've got my kids are about the age of some of the Starbucks workers. Right. They um, they really don't understand how labor relations works and they don't want to hear it. Like, you know, there's articles out there. Well, Starbucks said we might not end up with the same thing we've got today. And they're complaining about it. Well, that's a factual statement, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you could wind up with more or the less or the same. Same mm-hmm. thing with Amazon. There's an article saying, you know, Amazon, Amazon workers are threatened by the company saying they could lose things or whatever the, the comment was. But that's a factual statement. 
I can yeah. attest to that personally. <laughs> so. You 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 had it happen through a union negotiation? Um, oh yeah, we were on strike back in the eighties. Yeah, something got taken away. Some things got granted. We so, went back to work making less than we were when we went out. Crazy. That was called concession bargaining, and everybody was doing it back in those days. Yep. Um, yep. Everybody hated it. Um, I, we sound like uh, the the old guys at the top of the theater and the Muppets. <laughs> we are. You know, um, I feel like that every day. <laughs> yeah. So so another uh, another election with another progressive company happened yesterday. REI Co-op uh, Equipment Retailer in in New York Soho in New York mm-hmm. had an election, and uh, I I don't know, I think it was eighty eight for the union and 14 against um I, I also rei also a company that at least in the media seems to get positive press for the way they've treated their employees and stuff but um this uh this uh, this particular co-op i guess is what they call it store location um filed a couple months ago and they now have uh they also have elected to unionize these are unusual things food service retail well, the, you, we don't see organizing in these spaces as much because there's challenges with turnover and you know just all kinds of different things. So, uh, is it a progressive company problem, or is this something that we're going to see spread to more? I guess I don't want to say traditional businesses, but brands that may not be quite as progressive from a reputational point of view. No, I think um, I think we're seeing it societally, and it's not just progressive stuff. Um, although they theoretically should be easier because they're, you know, they've espoused a certain political philosophy or whatever. Um, but no, I think we're, it's a younger generation thing. Um, I think it has to do with a lot of stuff that has been taught. I mean, if you look at your typical Starbucks worker and probably, I don't know much about REI, uh, I don't shop there, but you know, you're looking at a younger worker who's got some college education, which means that they've probably had professors or teachers talking about, and not necessarily union, but the more collective type of approach to society. Mm-hmm. And which then, if they ever hear union, that's the whole buzz. Joe Biden said something interesting when they released, um, I want to say it was two, three weeks ago, the White House report. Yeah. And he had Kamala Harris on one side of him and Marty Walsh on the other. And it was just, it was almost a throwaway line uh, where he said, um, and it's to the union leaders in the room, you guys have done a good job in educating people or something like that. And it was just, is just a real quick line. And I was like, huh, is they've been working this the whole time during the pandemic. Um, the pandemic has led to a lot of disruptors in the work workforce. We also, and I think this may change in the coming months or years. Um, we also have a very tight labor market. Mm-hmm. So that gives obviously workers more leverage to push their demands. And if you have somebody who has been planted in your workforce and saying, you know, oh, we're underpaid, we're underpaid for three to six months. And then all of a sudden they say, you know, a way to solve that is by signing a union card and getting a union in here. That just blows stuff up. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we had, we had an employer not long ago that had, um, they had been planted or had molds in the workplace for months. And so, you know, this is happening and this is kind of traditional, this, you know, putting molds in the workplace is not new, but it's happening more widespread. 
one of the unions doing it because they had so many people laid off during the pandemic is natural for them to, you know, have extra bodies laying around the union hall, so to speak, and say, Hey, why don't you go get a job at their, that company they're hiring. So, hmm. um, REI just, uh, one of the things they did a couple of years ago, probably more than a couple, I was probably pre pandemic was they were one of the first companies to announce that they were closing on a retailer, mind you closing on black Friday so that their associates could enjoy the Thanksgiving holiday and not have to come back to like that, you know, that insane kind of retail environment that's been created around black Friday. So they're, you know, the notion is that they're, they were stuff like that, that they're a caring employer and so on and so forth. And so they got some good press from that. I, I don't, I don't know much about them. Otherwise there are sports uh, equipment, like an outdoor, you know, hiking and camping and that kind of stuff. That's what, what they yeah. sell. But anyway, um, so we're, we're, we could, like you said, this could go on all day, but I don't have all day. Uh, let's, uh, let's switch over. So I, I personally think that, um, you know, for years, Walmart was kind of the, the, the target of many unions, specifically the UFCW, but they, Walmart took a lot of heat for all employers, I think. And I, I have I have a sense that in the last couple of years that they they've they've lost their place at the top of the heap, and it's now Amazon, who uh, who kind of has that that role for the for the labor movement. They have to your point they have an election pending in Bessemer, Alabama, two campaigns going on in Staten Island, New York. They have a, a Amazon Fresh grocery store in Seattle that just is trying to unionize. And they have the Teamsters have created a national office or a national campaign leader to kind of target their drivers. So they're facing all kinds of um, pressure um, and they're so far have been able to, to be successful in, in resisting it. Um, but it's, you know, so Starbucks, a big company, Amazon's a big company. And then you talked about a coffee grinder or a coffee brewing company in Cleveland or somewhere. We're seeing this in big companies, small companies, where are we headed over the next two years, Peter? Is, is organizing growing or are these companies aberrations? No, it's it's definitely growing. Um, and again, part of it, I think, is due to the economy. There's a labor shortage going on. Um, we've just come out of a, a pandemic where Congress decided to fund people to stay home. And, and this isn't denigrating at all, but you know, a lot of people are going back to work making less than they were at sitting home. So they're saying we need to do something different. And then from the media perspective, social media and everything else, you've got um, a lot of people saying it's time for a revolution. Mm -hmm. And so that's this, and a lot of it's coming from the, from the youth and um, it's fascinating. And I'm, I'm, I'm like trying not to take a side in this because I've been observing this sort of stuff and was part of it many, many years ago, but yeah, we're seeing, seeing the National Labor Relations Board starting to educate more people about their Section 7 rights, protected concerted activity. You're seeing more non-union strikes happening. Um, and from the HR perspective, you know, you mentioned a lot of the HR folks may not have familiarity with unions. I would only suggest that they get familiar very quickly because mm -hmm. it's changing and it's not necessarily that you're going to have a union, you know, drive happening. But if you're not keeping your employees happy, um, if you've got, you know, I, I grew up in Arizona, so I use this term a lot, burrs under the saddle, mm -hmm. right? You know, it's, you've got irritants going on and you're not fixing them or your supervisor's not fixing them. 
it's not going to take much when there's a where where there's a job across the street or down the street that's paying 50 cents more for you to lose your employees. So that's not a union issue. That's a turnover issue. But that's that whole fighter flee, right? So we have a lot of people, the great resignation, fleeing the workforce, going or fleeing the workplace, going somewhere else. But then you'll have a number of people that are going to turn around and fight. And they've got leverage right now because it's such a tight labor market. And until such time as that labor market, you know, expands. And this was even pre-pandemic, we had a shortage in the workforce. So I don't know that it's going to change anytime soon, unless we go into like a recession and jobs are scarce. And if, you know, at that point in time, again, this will depend maybe on the midterm elections and, and thereafter, but if you don't have as generous of a Congress giving away, you know, trillions of dollars, like we did during the, the, um, pandemic, I don't know that, you know, there, I don't know that there's going to be that much fight three to four years from now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, unions right now, I think are taking advantage of it. Um, so organizing is likely to rise, but I, I don't think this will be my last, last couple quick questions. Um, organizing likely to rise. And to Peter's point, if you're an HR practitioner, it's something you need to pay attention to and get yourself, um, educated on if you're not as familiar as you might be, because you you never know when this is going to come your way, given some of the examples that we've just called out. Uh, but the, the other thing that's going to be is I see it in my role every week is a highly increasing uh, level of protected concerted activity in it has nothing to do with labor unions. It just has to do with employees adv- advocating about something in the conditions in the workplace, terms and conditions of employment that they don't like. And, um, and, you know, whether that's signing a petition or kind of, you know, calling out for a day or, I mean, there's all kinds of different versions of that, but I think we're going to see a rash of that for quite some time as well. Right. Well, the other thing that um, a lot of HR folks are not going to realize until they get smacked with it is for example, wine garden, right? You know, wine garden, which is conferred right now to union only employers, the NLRB is going to go back to what the way it was during the Clinton era. And, and I'm saying they're going to, I just assume they're going to, but um, it's more than likely because there was a charge filed in uh, Staten Island with Amazon that an employee was denied his or her wine garden rights. So they're going to bring that back to the non-union sector. So, and that's for investigatory interviews. If your HR folks don't know, but if you have a employee that you bring in for an investigatory interview and they say, I want to, I want a representative or a witness here. You're going to have to confer that even if you're non-union. And if you don't, then you're going to have an unfair labor practice charge filed against you. Yeah. They're allowed to have, they're allowed to have a person in the room. That person is not allowed to engage in advocacy. They're there to listen and observe, but, but right. they're there to act as a witness on behalf of the, uh, of the person who's being investigated. So it's a, right. it's, a, it's an unusual kind of role and that for non-union employers, that sort of serves in the, the stead, I guess, of a, of a unionized facility where you would be able to request a shop steward and that person would be able to represent you and actually advocate on your behalf um, in some cases anyway. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, um, I got I to gotta wrap up because I got another mm-hmm. thing at 2 p.m. So I really appreciate you doing this. What, is, uh, what do you want to leave us with? What's the, what's the big uh, next big thing or the one call out? You got one that, you would, that we haven't touched on yet that you want to? mentioned no there's so many out there 
um, just get informed really quickly because it's changing daily. And there's stuff coming down the pike that um, most employers, unless they're paying attention to it, are going to smack them. Uh, I, I agree 100%. Uh, so Peter List, laborunionnews.com, the, the, the premier uh, volunteer coordinator and curator of Labor Union News in America, unofficially <laughs> conferring you with that title. Go uh, subscribe. Yeah. <laughs> and a pretty low subscription rate if you want the full service. Uh, it, it's worth the money. Um, thanks, for thanks for joining me today, Peter. Sure. I'll, uh, I'll get the show up and send you a link here in a little bit, but uh, good to yeah. catch up they, with you. They can tune into Labor Relations Radio, which is affiliated with the website too. Okay. So. All right. Where do they find that? Uh, at laborunionnews.com. Okay. All the episodes so th are up there. Th that's, your, that's your podcast as well. Yeah. So, all, right. all right. Well, thanks. Have a great rest of the week and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Talk to you soon, sir. Take care. Bye. Yeah. Bye.